This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. Yep, you got it. Um, hello, this is Vincent Berchanti, CFO of Firehouse Subs, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leaders Podcast. This is episode 425. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends all with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Sweeney. I'm attending the HR Tech Conference this week here in Las Vegas, doing some on-the-spot interviews. I nabbed a short one for you with Kevin Parker, who is today CEO of HireView, which is a company specializing in video hiring solutions. In a prior life, Kevin was CFO of PeopleSoft. And in fact, he had a number of stints as a CFO before changing his stripes. We uh, asked Kevin to take a look back and share uh, some of his CFO days with us. Uh, but first, I want to mention we haven't forgotten Part two of our real-time strategy dashboards episode will be kicking off next week with that part two segment of that important episode. And this week, we're going to also reprise a popular episode uh, from 2017 uh, with you. But first, I'm going to share this this short uh, interview with Kevin Parker. So here we are. This is Kevin Parker, uh, CEO of HireView. All right, so we're speaking to uh, Kevin Parker, who is CEO of HireView. We, we asked him to take a look back for us, and in fact, it led to the CFO office. Share with us a little bit of your professional history and how you originally came up through the ranks as a CFO. Great, great question, and, and delighted to share. I actually, my career ambition was in public accounting. I started, I was an accounting major. I started out at Price Waterhouse uh, as an auditor. And I thought that was my career ambition. But as I got to go as an auditor to more and more businesses, I really got drawn to understanding more about the way businesses operate. Uh, and so I left public accounting to be a controller for a company and then came up through the international controller and got aligned with the sales teams and things. But the more I got out in the world, the more I enjoyed just running business and, and being the CFO of a company was my dream job. I, I never had a, a desire to be a CEO. Seriously. Seriously. I, I, that's <laughs> All right, you I, caught me off guard here. I got to <laughs> I got to think about this. But along the way, when did you become sort of a big picture individual or someone who could really appreciate the vision of the company as well as uh, you know, its financial state? Sure. I ha I had the good fortune to be a sales controller 
for in a, a company in, in Southern California. And the VP of sales started taking me on customer calls. And I got to get out and see what was actually going on. And I was just riveted by it. And, and suddenly all the numbers, all the financials came to life to me in a very different way. And I was very passionate about getting involved in helping a company grow beyond the finance organization. And of course, that's the type of experience many finance executives out there would love to have. How did you, <laughs> when you find yourself at that on that sales call, anything come to mind about that first time you stepped into that office and here you are, this controller? What is he doing there? I mean, I, I was very fortunate and, and the, the gentleman I'm thinking of this, the VP of sales, turned out to be a great mentor for me and said, you know, I was a young guy at the time. He said, come on, kid, we're going on a sales call. And that just opened the door for me. And I, I remember sitting, it's like, just watch. Don't, you know, keep your mouth shut, sit in the back, listen and learn. And the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it and eventually wound up uh, moving out of the, the CFO role into a CEO role. As a CEO today, how does being a CFO inform your CEO leadership? Yeah, it, it, it informs it in a lot of ways. One, I, I work pretty hard to stay out of it, <laughs> recognizing that I'm not that anymore. Yeah. And so to give the, the CFO plenty of room to operate and do it in their own style and their own way. But I think what I've tried to do for the CFOs that have worked for me is give them a very similar experience and pull them out of the process to say, let's go out and see customers. Let's get out into the marketplace. Let's go see you know, what's going on in a variety of ways and, and bring that message back to your finance team. And, and share with them the importance of not just gap financial statements, but the importance in understanding the operating finance and the operating metrics of a business in a, in a new way. Now you, again, have been a CEO of multiple uh, middle market firms today. Is there a, uh, do you have relationships with private equity? How do you how do, you do that uh, exactly? We, we, I have, and, and one of the companies I was a CEO of that we eventually took public was a private equity sponsored company. Uh, and I thought it was a terrific experience. Uh, just the alignment between what the investors were looking for was really pretty exciting. So it's, it's worked really well. Building those relationships, did your finance background, do you feel, help uh, allow you to sort of connect with private equity in a way others might not I, I think it did. In, in retrospect, I hadn't thought about it, but I think it did. I mm -hmm. certainly understood the language and the vernacular of what they were looking for. You know, EBITDA and leverage were not a foreign term to me uh, as CEO. And sometimes, you know, that, that can be a new experience, but I think that the finance background has helped at every stage of my career, and it certainly helped in being involved with private equity. You mentioned the sales mentor, but you're also a, a pretty uh, established communicator after so many CEO tours of duty. Where did you get those skills? Along the way, did you have public speaking, or how did you get your, uh, because many finance executives uh, lack those skills. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't even tell you. I, you know, it's one of those things I, I, it's something you have to just set your mind and say, well, I got to be good at this. And you work at it and you think about it and you work at it some more. And, uh, and I think if I do have one, I wouldn't describe it as a talent, but one thing I always try to do is, is take things and distill them down so everybody can understand them. You know, as a CFO, you could get up in front of the room and start talking about, you know, your, your weighted average cost of capital and your interest rates and things like that. You can see the audience's eyes glaze over when you start doing that. I've always worked pretty hard to make sure everybody can understand it and they can relate things back to the job that they're doing. What would you want in a CFO today as a CEO? It's a, it's a great question, and, and I'm looking for a business partner, someone that wants to participate in the, with the rest of the executive team 
in running our business. You know, as I tell our CFO candidates, I'm not the least bit worried about our audits, our financial statements. We've got a world-class accounting team. It's the, all of the other things from a CFO perspective that somebody that wants to be out with customers, somebody that wants to help you know, the, the, the R&D team, the marketing team, and things like that, help them run their parts of the business better. And another, and another experienced voice at the table from a leadership perspective. What was, can I just ask, and, and we'll wrap up, but what was, uh, you said you were the sales controller and you were going out on sales calls. What was your next step after that? What happened after uh, that? I became a VP of finance uh, and then had my first opportunity from there to be the CFO of a public company, and this is 2000. Uh, so I became the CFO of a public company and then got recruited out of there to be the CFO of PeopleSoft. Uh, so, you know, sort of an interesting series of events. When was that, by the way? So I joined PeopleSoft in 2000. Oh, okay. So I was there through the hostile takeover and, and all of You've that You've been around stuff. the block. I, I, uh, <laughs> it's great hair and scar tissue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kevin Parker, thank you for joining us. Thank you. If you have any interest in hearing our complete interview with Kevin and how he plans to grow higher view over the next 12 months, you can find that interview on our sister podcast, Middle Market Thought Leaders, uh, where we, uh, we ask uh, C-suite leaders about how they're growing their businesses. In the meantime, here again is a popular episode from 2017 featuring John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot. was a loose framework, for lack of better terms. I mean, people didn't necessarily uh, spend it right according to their budgets, and it was, it was understandable because we were growing so fast, and, you know, the bot that, you know, all those investments were being covered up with growth, and so when I got here, um, if we were going to be public, that had to change, and so I talked a lot to the team about this idea of uh, balancing growth with profitability. And, you know, if we were going to go out there to the street and say it, then we had to hold ourselves accountable internally and set up a, a process where we can make that happen. And so uh, Brian Halligan, our CEO, bought into that, and he even coined the term, we're going to make the budget a first-class citizen. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot. Back in 2014, after taking HubSpot public, John and his team laid out a vision that included achieving steady improvements to the bottom line. Post-IPO, he stuck a stake in the ground to be cash flow positive in 2016. HubSpot hit that first bottom line milestone in late 2015. Find out how John and his team has continued to meet its profitability milestones after these words from our sponsor. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, 
you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're speaking to John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot, the inbound marketing and sales SaaS company where he manages finance and operations today. A while back, he played a key role in HubSpot's initial public offering. Prior to HubSpot, John served as CFO for Blackboard, a leading SaaS education company, and he also uh, played a key role there in Blackboard's uh, public first initial public offering in 2004. John, welcome. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you. I, I wanted to uh, find out more about HubSpot. I, uh, it's a company I'm familiar with being in the uh, digital media realm. Uh, but it would be uh, interesting to hear more from you. But first, we always like to uh, take a step back in time uh, with our guests, John, and ask them to share uh, some of those career experiences uh, that helped prepare them for the role they play today. What, what, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, so I would, uh, the first one I would, uh, I would talk about was uh, MCI. MCI is a telecommunications company. It was my second job out of school. And uh, I started in more of an accounting role. And I remember sitting in the closed meetings, and the accounting people were on one side of the table, and the uh, business planning people were on the other side of the table. And just through those meetings, uh, I, I was really interested in how the business planning people um, thought about the business, uh, thought about how the results would impact the forward-looking uh, impact of the business. And so I was kind of uh, interested in that in that uh, role in finance. Thankfully, an opportunity came up in the, um, in the planning group uh, at MCI we were separated as business markets and consumer markets. And the consumer markets was much more, um, the acquisition was uh, actually calling people. For some of the older people in your audience, they'll remember that. And don't hate me for that part of it. But anyway, um, there's a, part, a por portion of the uh, business markets, the small business group, that was much more, telemarketing like consumer. And so they were going to move that into the consumer business and call it mass market. And so they had a new uh, role as manager of the small business planning group. And so they asked me to move over into that role, and I jumped at it. And there was a couple of interesting things that happened in that role. One, you were actually taking a part of a business and moving it throughout the company. And you can imagine with a plan transfer, whoever's giving it away wants to give away as much as possible, and whoever's receiving it wants to get as little as possible. And so 
really needed to understand the players and develop relationships with them as well as to really have the facts and really understand the trends of the business so we could do that fairly. And thankfully, it came off without a hitch, and uh, the small business group was much more successful in its new home. So that was kind of the first. I would say um, the second was I went to a fast-growing .com in 1999. It was uh, in the digital coupon space. A little bit before its time, when you think about the, the likes of the living socials and the Groupons of the world. And uh, I went in there. We actually took the company public on the Swiss Stock Exchange, which was uh, definitely an interesting experience. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, bubble burst, and that company uh, ended up not doing very well. But I, I developed a great relationship with the uh, CFO at Ethensos, and he actually referred me to Blackboard to be their head of financial planning and analysis. And, yeah, I think it just tells you that, you know, in any company, no matter how well it's doing, you can still learn a lot as well as develop relationships that can help you in the future. And then the final one I would say is when I was at Blackboard, uh, Blackboard was doing really well. We'd been public. And the CFO left about four to five years in while I was there. And the the uh, CEO came to me and uh, another um, high-level executive in finance and said that he was going to put both of us up to the board for the CFO role. And unfortunately, I didn't get it. And at that point, you know, I, I had to do a lot of soul-searching. It was a bit of an ego blow, and I had to decide if that's where I wanted to stay. Thankfully, I realized that I could still grow there. I could still learn a ton, and I had a really good relationship with the, uh, the guy that actually got the job. And so I stuck it out. I learned a bunch, and he ultimately moved on, and I got my first CFO role. So I think it really shows you that you have to sometimes put title aside and make sure you're in a situation in a growing company or in a situation where you're still developing yourself. And if you are, then, you know, that's a great place to be. What what year was the uh, was it uh, two thousand and four the the IPO uh, for for Blackboard? Uh, Blackboard yes. yes, that's correct. And then when you jumped to HubSpot, uh, do you come in as the CFO? I did, yes. And tell us something about that role when you arrived. What exactly was the job or the role you envisioned for yourself there? Is it similar to what uh, you you were doing at Blackboard, or what was this the uh, order of business? Yeah, it was similar, just obviously at an earlier stage. Um, when I got there, uh, finance was more of uh, a nuts and bolts operational team and get the books closed, some very uh, low-level forecasting and planning. And really, um, I know that I knew that the finance team needed to become more of a trusted business advisor, both the team as well as myself. And so what I really started out to do was develop relationships across the management team and start developing my team to create relationships with those, those leaders so that we could start partnering with the business. We could really work with them as we planned and, you know, started to get ready to think about being public. And so um, that was really the goal and, uh, you know, thankfully uh, really brought in some really talented people and, you know, finance now and, you know, for the last couple of years has really 
seen as a partner to the business, working through making sure we're making the best financial decisions and investments that continue to grow the business. Yeah, that's uh, um, after the IPO. What then becomes the milestones? I have to believe that's that's sort of a where you t- stop and catch your breath and uh, you know set the stage for uh, the next level. What would you tell us about that mindset? Yes. So the good. So when we went public, we laid out a vision to investors that you know we really embraced as a as a a management team, and that was that we you know we had a huge opportunity really untapped. We, we thought we could grow really fast, but we wanted to show steady improvement on the bottom line. We were losing money when we went public, uh, but, you know, that's, that's not uncommon in the SaaS world given the big investments you make to acquire customers. But once you get those customers past their acquisition periods, you know, thankfully we have very high gross margins, it becomes very profitable. And so really the, the early stage was, and there's a couple of different flavors of profitability. The first thing we wanted to get was operating cash flow profitability. And because we were taking – we get about six to seven months upfront in payments on average from our customers. We don't get the year, two years, or maybe more like an enterprise company. But we still get six to seven months, so we're able to, you know, work with our customers' cash. And so we actually put a stake in the sand that we wanted to be operating cash flow positive and, 16, and we actually hit that in late 15. And then um, we wanted to get free cash flow positive. So even, you know, when we backed out our CapEx uh, requirements, that was the next stage. And we hit that about a year later. And then the next one is to get non-GAAP profitable. And we hit that earlier this year. And so we constantly put these stakes in the sand and started delivering at them. Now, all of these, theoretically, we could have hit earlier, but we wanted to grow as fast as we can because obviously, you know, we're in a bit of a land grab mode and once you get those customer relationships, they stay with you for a long time. And so we were balancing that, you know, making investments in the business, but continuing to show the street that we were delivering on the promises we made when we went public. So you've revealed some of what uh, sort of the relationship is with your customers, but could you explain better for us? What are the products or services uh, that uh, HubSpot offers today, and uh, what is its competitive edge, really? Yeah, so HubSpot started as a marketing software company, um, really at the top of the funnel. How you turn or bring strangers to your website, how you turn those strangers into visitors. And that was really the first four years of the company. Um, tools like uh, blogs and uh, search engine optimization tools, um, things like that. And then because our customers started getting all these visitors to their website, they wanted to convert those visitors to leads. And so then we moved further down the funnel, more into that marketing on automation layer, things like email automation, um, calls to action, landing pages, things like that. And so that was kind of the next four years of the company. Then in the last three or four years, we've actually moved even farther down the funnel, and now how do we convert those leads into customers? And uh, with some sales um, sales acceleration product and ultimately a CRM. And so we've continued to move down the funnel. Most recently, we announced uh, we have a big event every year. It's 
I, I can't even call it a conference because my marketing people would get mad at me. They call it an event. It's called Inbound. And we have, obviously, a lot of customers there, but we have a bunch of partners that help us sell and help our customers um, embrace inbound marketing, but also a bunch of prospects as well. And at that event, we actually announced that we're now um, adding a customer uh, product, more of a services product. So once you get that customer, how do you make them a delighted customer? And so at the end of the day, we really want to be that front office platform uh, for the target market we're going after, which is the uh, SMB or the mid-market space, companies with 10 to 2,000 people. And in that space, the, the thing that really differentiates us is the fact that we're all-in-one and we're really easy to use. Because most of these companies don't have very big IT staff, so they don't want to do a lot of integration and uh, on the back end. They want everything to have the same UI, you know, one, one uh, number to call for service, one bill to pay, you know, any way to make it easy for these companies that, you know, are trying to grow fast and have a lot on their plate. I'm curious what advice you might have uh, for other CFOs when it comes to partnering with the CEO. And I'm familiar with HubSpot's uh, CEO who uh, is often on television, or I've caught him a few times on TV, and he's rather provocative, clearly a dynamic uh, personality. What would you uh, tell us about partnering with such a CEO? In general, uh, I like growth. I like, I think, it attracts amazing people. It makes uh, it a fun place to, to come to work every day. And in order to have that, you need a, a CEO that really pushes the envelope. Brian Halligan, who you're referring to, uh, loves to challenge the status quo. And so he challenges us too. And so the way he and I work well together is as long as, as you set um, – parameters that you can work in. We call them guardrails. If you set those ahead of time, it makes decision-making so much easier. So, you know, we set guardrails that we wanted to grow the top line really fast, but we wanted to show incremental improvements on the bottom line. And so he bought into that. And so then when we're in the budgeting or planning cycle or somebody comes up with a initiative, you know, mid-year, that has to fit in the frame or fit in the framework that we that still delivers on those guardrails. And so, at the end of the day, um, as long as you know he and I have bought into that, then he can trust me to make sure that we're working within those guardrails. And so, it really it really makes uh, uh, a really healthy relationship. And uh, obviously, it makes it makes it a lot more fun when when you're growing at the rates we are. Okay, so as a as a SaaS company, uh, and I think you've already hinted at a few of the metrics that are important to you, but clearly uh, renewable revenues. But uh, have to believe, and you've already suggested that cash is something you keep a close eye on, I believe. But can you tell us a little bit about cash management? How critical it is to your role. Yeah, so obviously, you know, with a SaaS company, uh, investors are going to look to cash, uh, operating cash flow, given that, you know, the dynamics of taking the money up front and recognizing it over time, uh, if you're, you know, most SaaS companies, especially successful ones, uh, cash flow will outstrip, uh, you know, operating profits. And so from that standpoint, we watch it very closely. We think a lot about billing terms. Um, it's a balance, though. Uh, you know, if we went to... Uh, require everybody to pay a year up front, 
I don't think we'd have the velocity of the top line growth we have right now. And so we've kind of worked on that, uh, and we put some incentives in place so the salespeople try to get uh, as much up front. But at the same thing, we're not going to penalize them. And so we, we look at uh, operating cash flow. We look at free cash flow. Those are very important uh, metrics for us. We look a lot at the unit economics in the building, the business, excuse me. Uh, how, much, uh, how much does it cost to acquire a customer and what's the lifetime value of that customer? And that's one of the things we were pretty transparent about when we went public. You know, when we were, we, it's funny uh, in the, uh, with investors, they tend to uh, kind of, shift back and forth on how important profitability is versus growth. And the time we went public, profitability was much more important. And um, we had to be pretty transparent on what our unit economics were. Look, we're investing heavily because we see the returns we're getting in our business. And so, you know, companies before us hadn't been that transparent. But once we showed them that, they understood it. And then they've seen the incremental progress we've made on the profitability really, uh, I think, drove that point home. And so we look at those unit economics across geographies, international versus domestic. Like I said, we get a, a good portion of our business um, from our partner channel versus um, our direct channel, as well as, you know, we have different segments within that mid-market we go after. We look at a lot of that, and depending on where the unit economics is best, that's where we're going to make our investment, add more sales with people, put more marketing dollars. And so uh, that, that's a big part of uh, my job as well, to make sure that, you know, we're investing in the areas that have the highest unit economics. And then obviously the last one is retention. I mean, we look at retention a bunch of different ways. We look at customer retention. We look at dollar retention. We look at cohorts. So we're really making sure that we're keeping an eye on all the different ways we go to market and all uh, the different channels to make sure uh, everything um, is, uh, is looking good, and if there's, you know, areas that are showing challenges, we'll make some course corrections. What would you tell us about uh, customer lifetime value, which we know is top of mind among uh, SaaS companies? Absolutely, yeah. So we look at, yeah, we look at what, how, how our customers are coming in at what value, and then using retention and upsell rates, we uh, forecast that over time to see, you know, what, what it's looking like. And we look at it longitudinal. We look at, like I said, across uh, go-to-market go ways. And that's, uh, then you compare that to the, you know, the customer acquisition cost to get that ratio and make sure you're investing in the areas that have the highest uh, returns. Okay, we want to ask you about what we call a, a finance strategic moment or an aha moment where, uh, given your lines of sight into the organization as a finance leader, you were able to see an opportunity or maybe a risk, and uh, which led you to point uh, the organization in a different direction or modify how things were being done. What, what would come to mind? Yeah, I think I build on that idea I talked about when I got here to uh, HubSpot. You know, the the budget was a loose framework, for lack of better terms. I mean, people, you know, didn't necessarily uh, spend it right according to their budgets, and it was it was understandable because we were growing so fast, and you know, the bot that you know all those investments were being covered up with growth. And so when I got here, um, if we were going to be public, that had to change. And so I talked a lot to the team about this idea of uh, balancing growth with profitability. 
And, you know, if we were going to go out there to the street and say it, then we had to hold ourselves accountable internally and set up a, a process where we could make that happen. And so uh, Brian Halligan, our CEO, bought into that, and he even coined the term, we're going to make the budget a first-class citizen. And so uh, that loose framework went away, and now people had real budgets. And because we were still growing fast and we didn't want to stifle growth, we instead set aside uh, uh, an amount of money each year that we would invest as ideas would come up or, you know, depending on what was doing really well. And uh, we called that the JDBH fund. So BH is Brian Halligan, that's his initials. And our COO, J.D. Sherman, uh, that, that's the JD part of the JDBH. And so the JDBH budget was set up internally, so we set that money aside. And then we had full-throated discussions as a management team, how we were going to spend that money internally and make sure that we were investing in those areas that were going to drive the longer, longest-term value. And, uh, you know, I think that process has worked very well for us. I want to touch on talent with you and discover uh, what, if any, influence you believe the finance leader uh, has on uh, talent today within the company. And, again, I always turn to this uh, anecdote that uh, we see on the Internet where there's a CFO asking the CEO, what, what happens if we spend money training in our people uh, then leave us, and uh, the CEO replies, well, what happens if we don't train them and they stay? Um, and there seems to be this uh, back and forth often. Uh, what Are there certain priorities that you have as a finance leader that influence uh, the workforce today, how it's, how it's paid and compensated clearly? Yeah, I would, uh, we think about this a lot. When you're growing as fast as HubSpot is, people are critical, especially in a software company. The first thing we try to do is make sure we have the right recruiting team in place that we can actually bring on very talented people. And, you know, we really hold ourselves to a high bar. We want to bring in just as talented or more talented people the bigger we get. And so we use uh, similar concepts to inbound marketing. We do a lot of our, uh, our recruiting team and our people ops team do a lot of blogging to try to attract a bunch of people to what we're doing. We have a um, culture code that we have codified in a deck um, that's one of the uh, most viewed uh, decks on SlideShare that people review, and they're like, wow, I'd like to, I'd like to be a part of that company. That's, a, that's an interesting culture. So really it starts with actually attracting those people. So then the next thing is, then how do we grow those people once we once we get once they get here? And we spend a lot of time on that. We have uh, a lot of training classes internally. We actually have a fellows program, which is you know a very lightweight MBA program that we put our top uh, leaders in. We have you know a very generous tuition reimbursement program, um, and then we have we have a monthly dinner that's for our top uh, top individuals where one exec takes people out, which we call the Champions Center. And so we do a lot of things to try to identify the top talent. And then once we identify those people, not even not only on the training side, but then we make sure that we're compensating them uh, appropriately. We like to uh, – we, we stole a term from uh, the baseball world, uh, VORP, value of a replacement player. 
And so basically, from a compensation standpoint, we look at our top performers and we think about what it would take to replace that person. And so we lean into or we you know, pay more both in cash and equity to those top performers so that we can build them and grow them and you know, make sure that they stay with us and they're motivated. And, you know, it's partly compensation, but it's partly opportunity. And as opportunities come up, we make sure the management team knows who those people are and we give them those opportunities so they can continue to keep growing. Uh, we have our mentoring round now where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor uh, future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, I think it's really the SaaS model. Um, as, a, as a CFO who's lived in a perpetual model where you worry every month or every quarter at the end whether you're going to hit your numbers uh, and you really lose sleep, in the SaaS model, so much of your revenues and deferred revenue based on things you've sold in the past, it can actually let you take a step back and really plan the business, make investments accordingly, and it really, obviously, is good as a finance leader, but it's obviously good for the company as well. And it's not just on the finance side, but it also keeps you a lot closer to the customer. When a customer can vote with their wallet, when they can stay or leave with you uh, on their annual subscription, you really know what they want, you really know how they're doing, and it keeps you from getting, uh, you know, lazy or, you know, uh, complacent. And so I love that model. It's kind of, you know, becoming more and more ubiquitous, but uh, I love that it, it continues, and I think there's we're going to see it uh, for a long time to come. Can I ask, and just to add a question here, I think it's interesting. You've emphasized the customer, as does, you know, uh, other SaaS CFOs frequently do. You wanted to do your own research maybe and understand better how those relationships take shape is there anything you did? I mean, did you go to, you know, conferences more often? Or how did you uh, assert yourself into the customer experience and get your arms around it? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, being uh, a company focused on the S&B space, inevitably you're going to have friends that have started companies that are going to hopefully buy your product. And that's happened with me a lot. And so I've been able to talk to them and understand their needs. And what we've done as a management team is every monthly management team, obviously we go through a lot of uh, numbers and then we go through our strategic objectives and, uh, you know, our operating plan. But then we also have a uh, customer call at uh, every one of our, um, our our monthly management meetings. And that's, that keeps us uh, focused on uh, what the customer wants. We also have an individual that's pure focus is on uh, our product net promoter score. And he presents at that monthly management meeting. And he has this really cool chart that basically we call the Boulder chart. And for, you know, five or six different um, satisfaction measures within the product, he measures whether that is a huge attractor, a, a moderate attractor, or neutral or even, you know, some that are slightly negative, and then puts um, uh, graphs out whether that's moving up, more positive, or down, and how big the boulder is based on how many people mention it. And so it really keeps us focused on what we need to do on the product and service side to try to keep moving those boulders up 
uh, you know, moving up. And then the, the ones that, you know, might be down might be very small and very few people mention it. And so it really allows us to stay laser focused on what we're doing to drive customer success. Is there something you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? So I would imagine this might have been at Blackboard when you first, uh, you know, elevated and stepped into that office at the first time. For the first time, what would you what would you tell us? Is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you as you stepped into that office? Well, I think the one thing I would say is that CFOs get too much credit when things go right. And CFOs get too much credit when things don't go so well. And I think that what's interesting thing is about that is that externally people don't really know, you know, how great a job you're doing. If the company's doing well, they presume you're doing well. And if the company's not doing well, they presume you're, you know, have a stake in that. And so I think picking the right companies and ensuring, you know, you're picking companies that, if, if this is your interest, that are growing and gives you a lot of great opportunities, then you will have an opportunity to grow. And, uh, uh, you know, from an external standpoint, you know, people will understand or even give you credit for, for that success. And ultimately, you know, you're going to have more fun as well. But I think it's, it's really that, you know, perception you're going to get based on where you go. And so don't make short-term decisions based on getting, you know, another small uh, increase in money or like that. Think about the long-term opportunities and the rest of that will take care of itself uh, if, you're, if you pick the right uh, company to go to. Do you have a personal habit that you feel has contributed to your professional success? Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it a habit as much as a behavior or something I do. I'm, I'm a pretty good networker, which, you know, for CFOs, you know, a lot of CFOs are pretty introverted, but, you know, they, they don't spend the time on that. And, you know, I understand that there's times, obviously, I've got a lot of other things going on with my job and personal and everything like that. But making those relationships, staying with them, you can then use those relationships when something comes up at work. There could be something – you know, from uh, uh, you know, you're looking at a product and you want to get somebody else's opinion. Thought Leader listeners, whether you've already ascended into the ranks of finance leaders or have only just begun the journey, your professional narrative needs a reboot. Join our email list at cfothoughtleader.com and receive my latest email series. Finance and the power of narrative. It's time to mobilize the past to achieve your goals. Thank you for listening.